Could you please open your Bible to Genesis chapter 10? And I trust that you have an outline sheet, or if you can see one person next to you, because I think it will be helpful for you. There are a couple of pictures on there this morning, uh, which I, I trust uh, will, will help. Um, I do just want to say, say from the start that I could well pronounce some things wrong this morning. Um, I'm not an expert on Hebrew. I'm not even an expert on English. Um, so please forgive me if I butcher some of these names, and I trust you can be gracious to me as we work through this. Uh, Genesis chapter 10, it's known as the table of nations. If you look at the final phrase of verse uh, 32, it says, And by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood, and hence the name, the table of nations. Now, before we begin our journey through Genesis chapter 10, uh, I'd like us to pray. So let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. And uh, Lord, we know that all scripture uh, is inspired as God breathed. We know all scripture is inerrant uh, and infallible. And uh, we do thank you and praise you for that. We pray you would help us this morning as we work through uh, this portion of scripture. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Most people at some stage of their life uh, become interested in their family tree. Some people spend a lot of time and a lot of money trying to trace back the family line as far as possible. And things such as Ancestry.com have become a big business as people seek to find out more about their own personal history. But here's something interesting. I can show everyone here this morning where you come from. It doesn't matter where you were born, doesn't matter your nationality, doesn't matter your skin tone. All you need to do is look down to the Bible. It's recorded in Genesis chapter 10. And if we had enough information, we could all trace our bloodlines back to the start of this chapter. Because what we have recorded here is the repopulating of the earth after the flood. So everyone who has lived after the flood, which includes you and includes me, we come from Noah. We come from one of his three sons. So we could say that this genealogy is actually our genealogy. And from the Bible, we can confidently say that all come from Adam and all come from Noah. There's only one race of people. Now, this particular list is incredibly fascinating. I understand if you don't see it initially, but such a list gives us an insight into the origins of varying people groups. Hence, it's called the Table of Nations. And I want us to understand that such a list does not exist anywhere else. When you study most ancient cultures, there's a creation story. There's a flood story. And there's a tower story. Okay, that shouldn't surprise us. It's all borrowed from the Bible. But none of them contain a list like this that's recorded in Genesis chapter 10. Okay, some lists of names have been discovered and they were nations who had been conquered. But a list like this that contains the roots of so many nations is unique to the Bible. And what's fascinating is that the historical accuracy of this list is continually being proven. Okay, there's archaeological evidence that has confirmed the accuracy of the table of nations. And what's interesting, one of the world's leading archaeologists, 
though himself is not a believer in the infallibility of Scripture. He said this concerning the table of nations. It stands absolutely alone in ancient literature, without a remote parallel even among the Greeks, where we find the closest approach to a distribution of peoples in a genealogy framework. The table of nations remains an astonishingly accurate document. Now, this is not surprising when you believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. But this ought to increase our confidence, okay, that the Bible is being proven to be accurate repeatedly. And the more that's discovered, the more the Bible has been proven to be reliable. You know, throughout history, there's been okay, many occasions where people go, ha, huh, there's a contradiction in the Bible. That didn't happen. And then there's a discovery and a, hey, the Bible was actually right. Okay, that's happened time and time again. So such a text like the one before us, okay, it has a lot of historical detail. When it's proven to be accurate, this really increases our confidence in the veracity of the Scriptures. Now what I'd like to do in this sermon is to unpack this table of nations and endeavor to increase our understanding of it, and also to see how it's relevant to our lives. So that's the goal, and I want to do this by sharing some observations about the table and then some implications from the table. So firstly, let's see some observations about the table of nations. So my goal in this first point is to help us understand the structure and the purpose of the table of nations. Now, the observations that I'm going to present, they will vary in simplicity, obviousness, and length. Okay, some are really short, some are a little bit longer. Now, here are some observations that I hope will increase our understanding. So, observation number one, this is a new Toledot. Okay, the book of Genesis is structured around what's known as a Toledot, and we've endeavored to point that out as we've worked our way through the book. There are actually 10 in the book of Genesis, and usually it's translated, these are the generations of, okay, and the Hebrew word is Toledot. And we see this phrase in verse 1. It says, now these are the generations of the sons of Noah. Now, there is debate among scholars whether a Toledot signifies the beginning of a new section or the end of a previous section. So it could be an introduction or it could be like a concluding signature. Now, it is interesting that clay tablets have been discovered and there's a signature at the end of the tablet. And that identifies either who wrote it or who owned it. But whatever way one understands this Toledot, it tells us that this is starting a new section. It's like a new chapter in the story, if you like. And it seems that Moses, who's the author of the book of Genesis, is now moving to a different historical source as he compiles this book. So this is the first Toledot that we've seen since chapter 6 and verse 9. And it seems that this new Toledot that commences with the table of nations was originally compiled by Shem. Okay, that was the historical source that Moses has referenced. But understand that it only became inspired under Moses. Okay, so this is one of the ways that the inspiration of Scripture works. Okay, the authors would do their research and it would become inspired as they wrote. Okay, so this is a new section, a new Toledot, 
likely sourced from Shem's documentation. Observation number two, it's structured around the sons of Noah. Okay, this table of nations, it has three parts or three segments. Okay, verses 2 to 5, we see the sons of Japheth. Verses 6 to 20, the sons of Shem. And verses 21 to 31, the sons of Shem. I think I said that twice. It's meant to be the sons of Ham and then the sons of Shem. Now, it, it does not trace the lines of all the family members. Okay, because you'll notice here there's no mention of daughters, although they definitely had them. And you'll also notice that it doesn't trace okay, every son of Japheth, Ham, or Shem. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that they didn't have children, but rather it was not required for the purpose of the table of nations. Observation number three, there are 70 families coming from Noah's sons. So if you were to count all the names listed in the table of nations, please don't do it now, do it later, because you won't hear what I'm saying. But if you don't count Noah and his three sons, you will see that there are 70 different families mentioned here in the table of nations. That's assuming that the Philistines that are referenced in verse 14 is an aside, okay, which is what most scholars believe. Now, this particular number is deliberately chosen because 70 communicated completion. Okay, it's the multiplication of the two biblical numbers of perfection, okay, 7 and 10. 7 times 10 is 70. So what this number is meant to communicate is that of totality. So it's declaring all the nations of the earth. Observation number four. This genealogy is different to others that precede it. Okay, this is not the first genealogy that we've seen in the book of Genesis, nor will it be the last. Now, if we were to compare it with the genealogy that we saw in chapter 5, we would see that there are differences. Because here in the table of nations, it doesn't just say, you know, and such and such beget such and such who beget such and such. Okay, it doesn't follow that particular structure. And that's because its intention is different. I want you to notice that the three segments of this genealogy that we've already identified, they all finish in a very similar way. Okay, it's not in the same order, but it includes the same four elements. So if you look at verse 5, okay, this completes the first segment. It says, By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, everyone after his tongue, after their families, in their nations. Then verse 20, this concludes the second segment. It says, These are the sons of Ham, after their families, after their tongues, in their countries, and in their nations. And then verse 31 says, These are the sons of Shem after their families, after their tongues, in their lands, after their nations. So hopefully you can see the similarities there. Okay. And although that the order is different, and some of the words are translated differently in English, they are the same four Hebrew words in each concluding statement. And what that tells us about the table of nations is that it speaks of people peoples and places okay, so it does include the family line just like a normal genealogy but it also speaks of peoples that is tribes and nations that have come from the people and then it also speaks of numerous places so this is different to a typical genealogy 
It's even different to the one in First Chronicles, which is very similar okay, with the names that we find here. Okay, observation number five, it fits chronologically after the Tower of Babel. Okay, the Tower of Babel is recorded for us in Genesis uh, chapter 11, and okay, we'll get to that next Sunday. But the table of nations here that explains the spread and dispersion of the varying people groups, it actually fits after the Tower of Babel chronologically. And we know this for a couple of reasons. Okay, with all three groups, it says after their tongues. Okay, that means different languages. That happened after the Tower of Babel. Okay, that was a consequence. And notice also in verse 25. Okay, verse 25, it's speaking of Peleg, whose name means division. And it says, in his days was the earth divided. Now, some think this speaks of continental drift, but it seems much more likely that this is referring to the dispersion of people throughout the world after the Tower of Babel. So this table of nations fits chronologically after Babel. We could say that the Tower of Babel functions as the theological explanation for the spread of the nations. Observation number six, this is all about the world's repopulation. Okay, this is part of the reason why I think Moses places it before the Tower of Babel. Because if we had the Tower of Babel first, we think, well, where did all these people come from? Okay, and Genesis chapter 10 helps us to understand that. Now, you know, if we ask the question, okay, how was the world repopulated after the flood? That, that's a good question. Okay, the whole world's just been wiped out. What now? Okay, well, verse 1 answers this for us. The world was repopulated through the sons of Noah. Okay, and he lists the three sons. Now, this seems to exclude the possibility of Noah having more children because we're told it was through his sons. And this is like a recreation type moment they were fruitful and they multiplied they replenished the earth just as the lord had commanded them in chapter 9 and verse 1 as he gave covenantal instructions so the lord graciously allowed noah's sons and their wives to be very fertile and it was through them that the world was repopulated after the flood observation seven uh, this list is incomplete this doesn't tell us the origin of every nation. Okay, certainly not every nation that exists today, and not even every nation that we find in the Bible. So we shouldn't think that this necessarily accounts for every nation. This list is not intended to be all-inclusive. Then observation number eight, okay, the misconception of the word nation. Okay, we refer to this list as the table of nations. But when you and I think of nations uh, in this context, we need to be careful that we don't use our modern concept of the word. Okay, nations today have clearly marked boundaries, clear laws, and they have governments. That's not the sense here. Okay, we're better off thinking of like family tribes. Okay, that's a closer modern equivalent. And then observation number nine, we can be reasonably certain, but some uncertainties remain. Now, it's possible for us to determine from this list the origin of many nations. Okay, well, how do we do that? Well, we can figure this out through other scripture uses of the terms found here. 
along with archaeological discoveries. Okay, you know, they have found inscriptions with these names. And then also other writings throughout history, both ancient and more recent. And Josephus has a lot of writing okay, explaining Genesis chapter 10. So this enables us to be certain about a lot of the names on this list, okay, where many of these people groups and tribes found their beginning. But there are some difficulties, and that's not to be unexpected because nations change over time. Some nations are no longer existing, and some names given are the same names of countries today, but they're now in different locations. So there are some complexities, but it is possible for us to be quite certain. So with those observations in mind, okay, here are the nations who scholars identify these initial tribal family groups with. And there's actually quite high agreement amongst the scholars. Now, this is where the outline is going to be helpful. You'll notice on the back uh, there is a map. And when I start talking about geographical locations, you'll be able to see it on the map. Okay, so let's start working through this table of nations. So let's start with the family of Japheth. Uh, there are seven sons listed. There are seven grandsons from only two of the sons. You'll notice this is the smallest group. And I believe that's because, okay, for the most part, they ended up the furthest away okay, from the Shemites. Okay, the focus is always on the seed line in the Bible. Okay? Shem would be the, is from where Messiah would come. So the family of Japheth, they ended up in Asia and Europe. And Japheth is regarded as the father of the Gentiles. So let's consider the sons of Japheth. So son one is Goma. And from him come the Crimeans. And they settled north of the Black Sea. And it actually seems likely that his descendants ended up occupying Germany, France, and Britain. Okay, you see that Goma had three sons. Okay, Ashkenaz is identified with Germany. Because it's interesting, even today, German Jews are known as the Ashkenazi. Now, another son here is Togomar, and he's believed to be the ancestor of the ancient Armenians. The second son of Japheth is Magog, and he's believed to be the ancestor of the Scythians. They lived north of the Caspian Sea. Then we have the third son is Madai, and from him came the Medes. Okay, that's someone who we read a lot about later in the Old Testament, a powerful empire in the times of Daniel. And this tribe settled south of the Caspian Sea. Now, son four is Javan. He's believed to be the father of the Greeks, and his family settled uh, in Greece. Now, four of his sons are listed. Uh, you'll see Tarshish. He's often identified with Spain, but the, there is some debate around that son. Then there's Katim, is thought to be Cyprus, okay, the, the island. And then there's Dodonanium is associated with Rhodes. Now, son five of Japheth is Tubal. You know, from him comes the Turks. And that tribe dwelt south of the Black Sea. The sixth son is Meshech. He's the ancestor of the Slavs. And they live between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. And then son seven is Teraz. He's the father of the Thracians. And they were located west of the Black Sea. 
Okay, so there's the, the family of Japheth. Let's now consider the family of Ham. Okay, there are only four sons listed. Now remember the youngest son, Canaan, we saw this last week. He was cursed because, because of his father's sin. And what that means is that Israel would later take the land of Canaan. Now the Hamites would have more to do with the Samites because they remained in a closer proximity. So Ham and his sons settled in Egypt, Africa, and Mesopotamia. So let's consider his four sons. His son number one is Cush. He's the father of the Ethiopians. And his tribe settled south of Egypt. Now we see that Cush had six sons and two grandsons included in this table. One of them is Seba, and he's usually equated with the Sabinians. Then we have Havaliah, Sabta, and Sabdaka, and they all seem to be in Arabia. Uh, Ramah was also in Arabia. We see that his two sons are mentioned. They're the only two grandsons of Cush named, and they also seem to settle in a similar place to their father. And the other son of Cush is the infamous Nimrod. Yeah, he's unique in this genealogy. There's a few verses that talk about him. And his empire began with Babel, which people believe was in Babylonia. Now, the second son of Ham is Mizraim. And we can be very confident that from him came the Egyptians. And there are seven of his sons listed. And you'll notice that they end with Im, okay, I am. And what that tells us is that in the Hebrew, this is in the plural. So this is speaking of a people group, not an individual. And most of these sons likely occupied land in and around Egypt. Except for the final son, which is Kaphtorium, he is believed to be the ancestor of the Cretans. The third son of Ham is, is Putz, and he's the father of the Libyans, and they settled in northern Africa. And then son number four, this will be the one we're most familiar with, uh, is Canaan. He is the father of the Canaanites, settled east of the Mediterranean, and of course it would later be given to the Hebrews. Now Canaan had 11 sons, although most of them are not actually named, but rather it's the people groups who come from them is used instead, except for a couple. Okay? His elder son is Sidon, okay? from him I believe come the Phoenicians, and Heth is the ancestor of the Hittites. And then the other nine were tribes that occupied different parts of the land of Canaan. And we meet a lot of them okay, later on in the Old Testament okay, when the land is being conquered. Okay, you'll see the Jebusites, of course, they occupied Jerusalem. So there's the first two families. We'll move to the third family. That's the Shemites. Okay, the Shemites would be the promised line. So Messiah... Jesus would come through the line of Shem. And in the table of nations, there are five sons of Shem. Okay, son one is Elam, and he's the ancestor of the Elamites, and their capital was Shusha, also known as Shushan. Okay, we see that in the book of Esther. And they would later form the Persian Empire, okay, and they settled northeast of the Persian Gulf. Son number two the line of Seth was Ashur. He's the father of the Assyrians. And they settled between the Euphrates and the Tigris River. And of course, they would later become a very powerful empire. Son number three uh, is Afaxad. And this one is a little bit tricky. 
Uh, we know that Abraham come from his line. Uh, some suggest that he's the father of the Babylonians. But what's interesting is that his son, his grandson, his great-grandsons, and his great-great-grandsons are mentioned. Okay, this is unique in this table of nations. Uh, Joktan was the great-grandson. He was in the non-Messianic line. Okay, his brother Peleg was the Messianic line. But Joktan had 13 sons, and they all founded Arabian tribes. Now, son number four is Lud. They settled in Asia Minor, and they're also known as the Lydians. And then son number five is Aram, and he's believed to be the father of the Syrians, okay, located north and east of Egypt. Okay, he has four sons named here, and the only one we know much about uh, is Uz. And it seems that he named the land after himself because we know Job was from the land of Uz. So there's a brief explanation of what is a spectacular portion of scripture. And I trust you have a better understanding of what is a challenging text at first glance. But with the observations complete, which forms our explanation, I now want to move to some implications which will form our application. Okay, so secondly, some implications from the table of nations. How does this portion of scripture apply to our lives? I'm sure if you do read through the Bible program, when you get to genealogy, sometimes that's hard to determine application. Okay, so, so what does this teach us about God? What does this teach us about ourselves? Okay, how should it impact our day-to-day lives? Okay, well, the first implication from the table of nations is that it demands the eradication of racism. Okay, it demands the eradication of racism. You know, it goes without saying that racism is a massive issue in our world, and it's a massive issue in our own country. Unfortunately, the world's history uh, is marred by racist atrocities. And this has been compounded by the influence of evolution. Okay, I want you to understand evolution is intrinsically racist. It's all about a superior race. Okay, so it all plays into racism, which is very interesting. Now, unfortunately, those under the religious banner have often been just as guilty. Okay, some of the cults, such as Mormons and Jehovah's Witness, have horribly racist views in their belief system. And even some conservative and fundamental churches have been guilty of racism. Okay, if you read throughout history, black men not allowed to be ordained because of their skin color. Pastors saying that black and white should never marry. Or policies that prohibit interrace dating in a conservative fundamental organization you know and sadly whether we're willing to admit it or not okay we can all struggle with racism okay racism is more pervasive than we would like to admit and i'd like us to have a look at our own hearts you know i think we understand that there are some very blatant areas of racism we know they're wrong okay the transatlantic slave trade is wrong okay we, we would agree with that Okay, that, that's an abomination. But let's think of some more subtle ways that it can lurk in each and every one of our hearts. You know, if you've got children, would you be supportive if your child started to date someone of a different nationality to your own? When you hear of a crime committed, do you instantly blame one people group? 
When someone comes to church that is a particular nationality, do you instantly think, hey, they need to talk to someone of the same nationality, okay, instead of you talking to them? Do you try and keep your people from, sorry, do you try and keep your children from certain people groups? Would you be really upset if a certain nationality moved into your neighborhood? Would you ignore someone simply because of their nationality? Okay, these are some ways that racism can exist even in the hearts of Christians. So how does the Table of Nations address this? Well, what the Table of Nations makes very clear, there's only one race. There's only one race. Okay, there's one race. That is humanity. Okay, so when we start talking about different races, okay, we shouldn't talk like that. There's only one. It's humanity. All mankind come from Noah. Okay, where we can all be traced back to his three sons. What that means is that there's no superior people group. We, we all come from the same person. Okay, we have the same ancestor. And you know today that there's so much made about differences, okay, particularly in the race debate. And it can almost seem like we're talking about two different species. But we would be better off considering our similarities. All humanity is far more alike than we usually realize. Understand, that's the message of the Bible. The Bible teaches that we all come from Adam. We all come from Noah. The Bible teaches everyone has the same ancestor. We all have the same image of God. We all have the same sin nature. And we all need the same Savior. No one's inferior. No one is superior. My friend, understand that the message of the Bible is diametrically opposed to any form of racism. Okay, racism is completely incompatible with the gospel. And it certainly shouldn't be present in the church because Galatians 3.28 makes it very clear that we are all one and equal in Christ. And hence racism, both obvious and subtle, it has no place in the life of the Christian. And it certainly has no place in the life of the church. We are to treat all people with dignity and respect. Because all people are made in the image and likeness of God. All people are equally valuable. And I want to exhort you this morning, if there are racist tendencies lurking in your heart, you need to repent. Repent, 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 because it's sin. Okay, racism contradicts the gospel that you profess to believe. And it's deplorable in the sight of God because those people that you are mistreating bear the image of your God. Racism in all its forms is wrong. It's not acceptable. And we should never tolerate or excuse it. It shouldn't be in our lives, it shouldn't be in our homes, and it certainly shouldn't be in our church. Because all people share the same ancestor, have the same image of God, have the same sin nature, and need the same Savior. No one is superior. That's the first implication. The second implication is that God is the God of the nations. Okay, God is the God of the nations. Okay, the God of the Bible, the one true and living God, he is not a localized deity. He is not limited to one people group. 
nor is he restricted to one or two spheres of influence. Okay, understand this is how the gods of the ancient world were structured. Each people group, each location had their own set of deities. There's the Egyptian gods. There's the Babylonian gods. There's the Persian gods. There's the Assyrian gods. There's the Canaanite gods. There's the Greek gods. Okay, every people had their own set of deities. And most of these gods were limited. Hence, you would have the god of love, the god of war, the god of weather. Okay, so all of these gods had like their portfolio. And that's it. But the God of the Bible, the one true and living God, is very different. He's not restricted to one people group. He's not restricted to one location. Okay, that's abundantly clear from the table of nations. And he's not restricted in his sphere of influence. Okay, we could say that he's in control of every portfolio that exists. He's a God for everybody and he's a God for everything. And my friend, this is the greatness of our God. God is the God of the nations. And, you know, this is very important in context because the covenant with Abraham is about to be ratified. And the Lord would have this special covenant relationship with Israel. But understand, he is still God of the nations. He's not just the God of Israel. And that's still the same today. The God of the Bible is the God for everybody. He's not some localized deity. He, he's not just the God of the West. Okay, he's not just for America, Britain, Australia. He's not just the God of the middle class. But he's the God for everybody. And he's not restricted in power or influence. Okay, he's the God who is everywhere. Who can do everything and is for everyone. And he alone is worthy of our worship and adoration. That's our God. That's the second implication. And the third implication, this is about missions. This is about missions. And perhaps you think, how in the world is this about missions? Okay, that may be somewhat surprising. Do you know, it's very interesting that this list, okay, 70 names, represents the nations. If you go over to Luke chapter 10, only Luke records this. Jesus sends out 70 disciples to share the gospel. And Jesus there says those famous words, the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. And what I'd like to suggest is that Jesus had the table of nations in mind. 70 seems to be very deliberate. And what's particularly interesting is that there's a lot of textual debate about Luke chapter 10. And the debate is, was it 70 or was it 72? Okay, this is the debate. And why I mention this debate is because the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it actually lists 72 names in the table of nations. I believe it's wrong, okay, but it does list 72. And hence... If the table of nations and Luke chapter 10 is connected, it makes a lot of sense why there's this debate about 70 or 72 in that particular text, because the church has seen this connection. 
So the point here is that the gospel is for everybody. And Jesus desired that all would come to him. That's the idea of sending out the 70. We're meant to see this parallelism. You know, and as Christians and as a church, we should be very concerned about reaching the nations with the gospel. That was a concern of Jesus, and surely it should be the concern of the church of Jesus. Summarize it like this, missions matters. You know, as individuals and as a church, we ought to be praying for missions. Okay, that, that needs to be part of your personal prayer life, praying for missionaries. We need to be giving to missionaries, and we need to be a missionary. Okay, I think this is twofold. Okay, we are all called to share the gospel in our sphere of influence. That's what Jesus expects of each and every one of his disciples. And then the other side is this. Would you be willing to go as a missionary? Okay, go to another location to share the gospel. Because please understand that even today, that there are unreached people in our world. You know that there are countries who need to hear the gospel. People that need Jesus. Okay, all the nations of the world need to hear about Jesus. But how will they hear? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they hear if we don't do something about it? And I'd encourage you that there's nothing more worthwhile to get involved in than gospel work. Nothing greater to invest in. Okay, the spread of the gospel both here and abroad. And I do wonder if you, uh, if I, could be doing more for mission. Could you be doing more to aid the spread of the gospel? Could we do more as a church? Okay, how could we as a church and how could we as individuals be more missional just like our Lord Jesus? Jesus wanted the nations to be reached with the gospel. And the question that I'll close with is this. Do you share that same desire? Okay, do you share the desire of Jesus? And are you doing anything about it? Okay, desire will be proven by what we do. Do you share the same desire of Jesus? And are you doing anything about it? My friend, the nations need to hear the gospel. And we as a church have an obligation to get the gospel to them.